0: Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that has gathered together a church in your name to glorify your name throughout the land, Lord. And I pray that we might make good use of this time together as we reflect on what it is to remember you, to commemorate you, to live a life that is in constant remembrance of who you are, what you've done for us, that it can motivate our lives to continue to be a kingdom of priests unto the nations. Bless our time together in Christ's name. Amen. All right. these school teachers, I guess they're here. If not, you're welcome to stay with me. So today we're going to begin a series on a book called Exodus Old and New, a Biblical Theology of Redemption. It's written by Dr. L. Michael Morales. He happens to be my Old and New Testament professor. If you are familiar with him or unfamiliar, I would obviously we're going to go through this book. If you could get it and read it beforehand would be great. But if not, we're going to go through each chapter together. So, why this book? This week, as a means of introduction... This week, I had the opportunity to watch a World War II classic made in 1998. It won many awards. How many of you have ever seen Saving Private Riot? Classic, right? There you go. (laughs) Directed by Steven Spielberg, a bunch of A-lister actors are in it. So the main plot, for those who haven't seen it, the main plot is how a band of Soldiers, of brothers, are commissioned to save a particular soldier that is lost in Germany. And why this particular soldier? No, nothing intrinsically special about this private. But he happened to be the fourth brother of three other brothers who had been killed in action. And so the entire movie is saving this one private who's seemingly not very worth the effort. But because of his particular circumstance, these soldiers are pressing on in unknown places, risking their lives, sacrificing and some of them even dying for the rescue and saving of Private Ryan. Now, the beginning of the movie, Private Ryan is of old age. He has his family, his sons, his his wife, his grandchildren, and they're going to the cemetery and it's at the gravesite of Captain John Miller, which is the leader of the band of brothers, and he's looking at the gravesite with a, con- with a look of concern. And the camera goes right into his eye, into a memory. It goes straight into remembrance. And then the entire movie is you getting this front seat of this mighty work of delivery, of sacrifice, of saving his life. And at the end of the movie, it zooms out of his face, and now you understand why he's there. He's built an entire life on what? On the memory of those mighty acts of those soldiers. He ceased to be Private Ryan, the fourth brother of other soldiers, and the son of an abandoned family member that he's going to go back to. And now he is the brother of these soldiers in whom he owes his life to. And at the end he's looking at the gravesite and he's asking, did I, did I earn it? Did I earn it? Did I live a good life? Have I built something that is worthy of what you gave me? See, Private Ryan, his role as a father was in memory of his brothers. His role as a husband was in memory of the sacrifice of his brothers, the role as his grandfather, again, by the memory of what was done, the mighty work of deliverance. And it's interesting how the, the motif of the entire movie is very similar to the entire story of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible, is how God. Creating man in his image, for in his likeness and in his image, in his likeness to be in union and communion with him, and in his image to represent God in everything that he does in taking dominion of the earth. He is to emulate the Lord in everything that he does. But to be able to do that, to be able to exercise this vocation of being image of God, there is one test that he must be approved of. And it's the test of worship. Worship is at the center of what God intends to do. It is the very means of the union between heaven and earth. It is hinging upon the image bearer responding to the memory of God. The memory of his commands. Will you be faithful to what I am telling? to The command that I lay before you. And Adam fails, and with him we all fail. So the rest of redemptive history is God creating a a remembrance. You forgot God. And because you forgot his mighty work in creation, because you forgot the Sabbath, God then establishes a plan where he is going to deliver a particular people, from sin and misery unto a state of blessed salvation by a Redeemer. Now, that doesn't come cheaply. So, at the end of the book of Genesis, you have the exile of the nations in Genesis 11. You have the establishment of the promise through Abraham that God is going to regather. He is going to remind His creation, I am Yahweh. The Lord of hosts. The one whom you owe your worship and your allegiance to. I am the source of blessing. I am the source that's going to give you the land that is flowing with milk and with honey. With all the things that you are aiming at. But because of your sin, you refuse to remember His name. You refuse to acknowledge him as the Lord. And so Exodus begins that very story. And We're going to dive into it as we study the book. But Exodus begins God's agenda. His promise was in Genesis. And in Exodus, he starts to remind not only the Israelites, but the pagan nations, who is the sovereign one over creation. He reminds all of these people that have been exiled and they're blind to their creator and saying, I made the heavens and earth. And how does he do it? Through the plagues. I am Yahweh. I am your creator. You were made in my image and you need to worship me as your God. And after Exodus, we see in Leviticus, as Pastor Phil is, is taking us through, what it means that God dwells with his people. At the end of Exodus, God comes and dwells in the tent of meeting, in the tabernacle, and he establishes, this is me. I am with you, and it's me that's going to bless the entire earth. You don't get to do that by your might, by your making of your own name. It is Yahweh who does this work and no one else. And he comes to dwell with his people, and Leviticus starts to show the danger of God dwelling with his people. Because God's holiness is without comparison. So we see it in the defilement of the sanctuary in Leviticus chapter 10 with Nadab and Abihu. And at the end or framing the book, we have the execution of the blasphemer that's defiling the land. So both the sanctuary and the land must be holy so the Lord can dwell with his people. But God will make a holy people. And then in the book of Numbers, which is called in the wilderness, we call it Numbers, but in In Hebrew, it just means in the wilderness. We have the first generation of the Israelites after they're being freed. After they've been reminded, I am Yahweh, the one who rescued you from oppression. The one who freed you from the lordship of Pharaoh, this serpent king, into a land of blessing. But yet this first generation rebels against God. And in the second generation, it would have been the same story. But God's grace was with his people. And then in the book of Deuteronomy, we see a Moses who's tired. Exhausted of leading a people who are stiff-necked. Who refuse to recognize Yahweh as the source of all unchangeable wisdom, power, glory. And he writes to them. Based on the Ten Commandments, he does a, basically he commentates on the Tetratuk, on the four, previous four books. He's saying, listen, these are the Ten Commandments. And from the Ten Commandments, we're gonna see how it applies to civil life. And we're gonna see how a nation whose God is Yahweh is blessed. But you see in, in, in Moses' tone throughout the book, he's frustrated because he cannot enter the land, because he himself sinned, because even though the people were stiff-necked, he broke faith with the Lord. He was possessed by his frustration, as I would be, as any of us would be. Frustration with ministry, the difficulty and the hardship of dealing with the sinful people who forget the name of Yahweh. Keep that image of saving Private Ryan in your mind. It was, it was baffling to me to see how this man went through life remembering his brothers, building an entire life, everything that he did, he did for the honor and worship of his brothers. Sure, that's idol worship. There's another component to that. But the way that he completely built his entire life and at the end of his life to come to the grave, remembering so freshly what these soldiers did for him and saying, did I honor you? Is is, is my life good? And asking his wife, am I a good man? And his wife affirming him as a good man at the gravesite. So should be our dedication to the Lord. So should be our remembrance of who God is. And so should be the roots that we plant deep on this, the security of God, the security of his name, his provision, his blessing, his sustenance, his keeping of his people. The entire Pentateuch provides the framework of what we understand to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is creating a people who remember the name of God through a circumcised heart. Who love God and love neighbor in that right order. How? Through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. But to look back on some of the events, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. We want to look at this chapter because it's a summary of what the Pentateuch is. And based on what Moses lays out here, we're going to understand more focusedly, as the series goes on, what we're going to see in the structure of Exodus particularly. So, Deuteronomy chapter 8. And the heading and the theme... What do we see? It's remembering. Remember Yahweh. In your translation, it says the Lord your God, right? ESV, the Lord your God, yeah. The Hebrew is Yahweh. So the theme of the entire chapter is this remembrance. And Moses makes an emphatic point on how the entire life of the people is to remember the name of Yahweh. And then... Off of that, we have a structure, before we go into it. The structure of the chapter is what it's called a mirror effect. Where the text, it's structured in such a way that it lays out bookends of virtues. Lays out one virtue, ends with another, and everything in between is building into that last virtue. And then the second set, is going to build a negative. It's going to do the same thing, first in a positive, and in a mirror effect, is going to build onto a negative in the same framework. So verses 2 through 11, we are going to see how remembering Yahweh, remembering Yahweh, leads to a humbling of the heart. And the humbling of the heart leads to blessing. I'm running out of space. I write so so cleanly. And verses 11 through 20, I'll just mention it for the sake of time. Forgetting Yahweh leads to self-righteousness that led, that then leads to death. So verses 2 through 11, we see remembering Yahweh leads to a humble heart that leads to blessing. And verses 11 through 20, forgetting Yahweh leads to self-righteousness that then leads to death. So let's read Deuteronomy chapter 8. The whole commandment that I commanded you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember The whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know. Nor did your fathers know. That he might make you know that the man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. For the good land he has given you. And now look at the mirror effect. Flipped in verses 11. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God. By not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes. Which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full. And have built good houses and lived in them. who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers. As it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God. And go after other gods. And serve them and worship them. I solemnly warn you today. That you shall surely perish. Like the nations. That the Lord makes to perish before you. So shall you perish. Because you would not obey the voice. Of the Lord. Your your God. So we see there in the structure. The mirror effect. So the first thing. In remembering Yahweh and verses through, 2 through 11, we see bookends. Remembrance. So, verses 2 through 11, the, the first bookend, humble remembrance, right? Humility, let's just write humility. It begins with humility. Remembering Yahweh begins with humility. And it ends in verse 11 with the fear of the Lord. So at the top, we have humility. At the bottom, we have the fear of the Lord. And in between each bookend, we see the development of the blessing of God. The blessing in the land, the fruitfulness, the gatherings of the people, all these beautiful and blessed things that we want to see in our own midst. People flowing up into the mountain of God, just like Isaiah chapter 2 depicts, where the nations are gathered up into the glory of God, is what? The bookends of these two things. And they echo all of the prophets and the writings. What does this remind you of? Proverbs chapter 1. What is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge? It is the fear of God. And in humility, you know, a lot of people go through the Pentateuch and think it's a bunch of commands and rules and nothing can be further from the truth. Yes, that is a big part of what the Old Testament is. But God is always asking what? Humility from your heart. A circumcised heart. Leviticus 26. If they circumcise their hearts and confess their sins, I will remember my covenant. At every point, it's circumcision of the heart. It is a love from the heart that flows obedience to God, that then produces the blessing to the nations. That entire structure remains the same from Genesis to Revelation. It's just that there is one who does these things, namely the person of Jesus Christ. But in the Old Testament, we see the Spirit of God at work. Although God commands you to circumcise your heart, it is the Spirit of God who does the work. He does it in obscurity and shadows. But in John chapter 3, as Jesus unfolds his kingdom and his ministry, the spirit of God is poured out in Pentecost to do that very work he's always done since the beginning. Okay? So circumcision of heart, loving God with every fiber of our being that produces good works, that blesses the land. And then... The second thing, right, in verses 11 through 20, we get the forgetfulness. And it's two, bookend, with two vices. The first is disregarding disregarding God. Disregarding Yahweh. That's the first bookend. And then the second bookend is idol worship. This is how it ends. It starts with disregarding Yahweh. And notice that in the second portion of the text, it doesn't lead to poverty. It doesn't lead to poverty. It's the same blessings, right? The building of houses, the might of your military force, all these great things that you are developing for your own name's sake. That echoes back to Genesis 11. And the building of the Tower of Babel. What's the intention there? It's not wrong to want to be in the heavenly places, but it is wrong to be there for the wrong intentions. It is wrong to be there if your heart is not settled on Yahweh and Him alone. It is because the nations wanted to build a name for themselves, apart from God, right? So the first thing is disregarding Yahweh, the same blessings flow out, and it ends... With idol worship. And in between, in verses back to verses two through eleven, we see a humble heart and the humility produces keeping commands, and that there is a trust, there is a trust with God that is echoed with Christ when he quotes from Deuteronomy 8. Did you notice that little line? That man should not live by bread with bread alone, or from bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is quoting Moses. Because that's what's always been the command. And when Satan comes to tempt him in Matthew chapter four, excuse me, that's when he quotes Deuteronomy. So Jesus is displaying for us what Moses is depicting there it doesn't matter. You can strip everything from me. 40 days, 40 nights, no food, nothing. All these things are in the periphery. What gives life is a trust in the Lord. And then we have the fear of the Lord from the book of Proverbs, as Proverbs is pulling from that. And then it leads to the blessing, blessing Yahweh, right? Psalm 103, blessing the Lord, how to bring all these things that he himself gives to us, we give back to him. And that's the height of the Christian life. As we come on the Sabbath, we don't come empty handed. We come with blessings. We come with sacrifices of thanksgivings. We come with sacrifices of praise. We come to say, Lord, search my heart and see where there is sin and rebuke me, make me clean. Psalm 51. But for what? To the restoration and the blessing of the world. And so we see captured here the entire history of the Pentateuch. And Moses is telling them, listen. Remember your God who delivered you from the oppression of Egypt. The oppression of Pharaoh. Remember the serpent king. His illusions of immediate satisfaction. That you had a plate of food. That you had some immediate form of comfort. That allowed you to avoid the responsibility that the Lord is calling on you as his people. By grace, through faith. Yet we bear that responsibility to be a kingdom of priests, a people who will worship God in spirit and in truth. And when worship happens in this way, blessings flow out from heaven. That's the scriptural model. And that's what we're going to see in Exodus Old and New. It's not necessarily to look at each chapter, although I'm going to do my best to go at each chapter of the book of Exodus. We're going to focus on this book by Dr. Morales He's going to draw out all the themes, not only from the book of Exodus, but from the book of Exodus in our hearts. That Pharaoh typifies the sin that you and I often revisit. And we forget the name of Yahweh each and every time we visit that sin. Every time you forget, every time you sin, I don't know who Yahweh is. I don't know what he's done for me. I don't know his commands. I'd rather do this, that is a part in violating his command, than to obey, know, and see that that's, that's going to be the, the structure. So why study this book? We will study this book with the purpose of refreshing our appreciation for the depth and meaning and worth of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the story of Exodus. And the depth and meaning and worth of the gospel. I think it's something that's lost. I think everybody throws this term around. Gospel a lot. And it's, and it's lost its significance. Again because we've, we've lost the understanding. Of deliverance. And of worship. We don't understand what our principal vocation is. To come on the Sabbath. But also to go out. After the Sabbath. And exercise our functions. As living stones. Priests who have access to the throne of God as we minister to others and witness the gospel. So that's why we're going to go through this because Exodus gives us all the themes, all the framework of what we mean when we say the gospel of Jesus Christ. It isn't just some cheap sacrifice on the cross. It is more, it is a story that goes deep into the soul of man. And it creates this cry out for deliverance that the deliverer is the only one who can do that work. Now that the Christian principles that shape the nation are eroding and losing significance due to the influence of atheistic ideologies, the world has stripped has been stripped of all of its enchantment. And when I, made, when I say enchantment, I mean it in a C.S. Lewis kind of way. The magic that God created in the world, that he holds all things by the word of his power, that we see all these things and we're, got, we're used to it. The beauty in nature, the, the, the order in it, all of it sings and praises God. And yet we pass by it as if it lost its significance. Why? Because, like I said, atheistic ideologies. that Everything is just the sum of its parts. All this magic in the world, all this power of God, uh, it's just a mathematical equation. That's all it is. And now that we've, uh, we've abandoned the Christian heritage... And now we're embracing nothingness and meaninglessness. That's how we're kind of like at this point in history where we're looking to social movements. This exodus from the oppressive shackles of the Christian heritage into meaninglessness or a wilderness presents itself as the deliverance the soul needs creating different social movements seeking to revolutionize the world. So that's what we see left and right. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to burn down buildings. We're going to because everything that The world is experiencing right now this emptiness, nothingness, meaninglessness. Because we've abandoned the Christian heritage, now we got to fill that vacuum. How are we going to fill it? Because man needs purpose, meaning. You can't escape that. So now you have to fill it up with all these made-up stuff that we're going through right now. The departure of the Christian heritage in the nation and in the West into a wilderness of meaninglessness is providing a seedbed for the next season of harvest in the kingdom of God. This is my opinion, obviously. Therefore, it is wise to revisit the depth of the meaning of the gospel in the book of the, of Exodus to be faithful witnesses in the world. Because of this vacuum, because of this nothingness and this subjectivity that has possessed the country, this glory to self and my desires and my plans and my agenda i 'm going to worship according to me, and not what God has established, I believe, obviously, the Bible is clear, that leads to death. and when death hits, when we see the product of our abandonment of the Lord, that's the perfect context when the gospel shines brightest at the darkest hour. When we look upon the King of Kings and see His beauty, His cross, His burial, His resurrection and ascension, there's nothing that can rival that message. And I think we're right at that point. It's good to also refresh our, not only our understanding of the context that we're living in, but also what makes us human. Humanity is created to worship. There is no such thing as a state of worshiplessness. Okay, Every human being has an ultimate authority that provides the values that guide their lives. And they will sacrifice in the name of that ultimate authority to promote knowledge of it and advance its dominion in the world. The world is not without worship. It's full of idol worship. But the world is one big altar. Everyone has a God. Because that's how God created us. And I'm hurrying up here. God makes humankind for the vocation of worship and tests Him in the temple of the Garden of Eden to see if we will do it in spirit and in truth. Observing Yahweh as the ultimate source of unchangeable wisdom, goodness, and truth that will bless the earth with life. Exercised by the crushing of the head of the serpent. This is key to understanding the rest of your Bible. God created us to worship. To worship rightly is to observe God. It is to settle on God. It is to settle on His satisfaction and the joy He provides that you look to nowhere else. And focusing on what He calls you to do, rooted through the seasons, is what leads to blessing. In the fall, our father Adam, together with all of humanity, failed to worship God, allowing the serpent to defile humankind and the world created for his dominion. Adam chose the way of false worship of the self as the ultimate authority. He sacrificed communion with God to promote the knowledge of the self apart from God, advancing sin and misery in the world. Okay, this is what's happening right now outside. And here is the flip side, right? This sets the stage for God's mighty work of redemption. He will deliver a people from the state of sin and misery into a blessed state of salvation by a redeemer who will worship God according to God and bring about the unbreakable union of heaven and earth. And that starts in the book of Exodus. This deliverance, what does it mean from the bowels of slavery? To be oppressed by death and creating this insatiable desire for the Lord. And the Lord begins that in the book of Exodus. All right. So I'm five over, but we started a little late. So anyways, any questions? No. All right. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you because you have delivered and you are delivering a people From the estate of sin and misery into a blessed salvation through Christ Jesus. Help us to look at the book of Exodus. Help us to see the desperation. Help us to see the meaning, the depth of your redemption so we might focus our love, so we might focus our affections in the right order according to your principles, according to your precepts, so we can then function as a body of worshipers. So you might bless our land with repentance. Lord, we desire to see your church. Gathered from every tongue, tribe and nation. And we believe you will accomplish these things. And we pray that you might do so through us. Bless the time of fellowship that we're going to have. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.